Well, if you've got your copy of God's Word, let's open up to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. We're actually going to be looking at three uh, main texts this morning. We've been going through a series on why revival tarries, and the idea is to understand why we have yet to see revival in the land in such a long time. And it's to understand what we as Christians need to do, what we are called to do, in other words, to do our part to see revival take place. Now, there's a lot of things that we can be doing, and we've looked over it the last several weeks, and last week we talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this week we're going to talk about the purging fire of God. In other words, having that desire for God to purge out of our lives things that are unnecessary, things that are unneeded. In other words, things that can hinder our relationship with God. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, we understand that trials are not fun, but are necessary. Look at me in 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7. It just says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found under the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And we understand some great things from this passage of Scripture. One, we understand that trials don't always last. If you look at verse 6, it says, Though now for a season, or it might say in a little while in your translation. I always think about this verse of Scripture. This verse stands out to me so much in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, when it simply says this, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful." who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. Now, it doesn't stop there. It ends by saying this, that you may be able to bear it. Now, a lot of people are always looking for the escape path when they're going through a difficult situation, and they're looking for God to get them off the troublesome path. God, when are you going to get me out of this? But the Bible says that God is going to give you the strength to bear it because he's got something to teach you through it. Now, think about this. The first youth trip I ever took, I took these kids to a camp. And we went to this camp, and it's kind of an adventure slash Bible camp. It was really exciting. We did a lot of crazy things. Well, one of the things they decided to do was take the kids spelunking. All right? They took us into this dark, dark cave, and all we had was a little headlamp. And so they took us down deep into the crevice of the cave. We got down in there. And then he goes, all right, here's what I want everybody to do. I want you all to turn out your lights. And I thought, dude, you do not take 15 teenagers, put them in a dark room, and turn out all the lights. You know? Now, he did have a point behind it. He said, I want you everybody to turn off their lights. So we did. We turned our lights off. And he said, now I want you to look up. And all of us looked up. And as we looked up, we saw just this tiny little speck of light. And he said, here's what we're going to do. He said, we're going to climb up this cave. And all we're going to do is walk towards the light. We're going to climb towards the light. Now, I want you to keep your headlamps off. And I'm sitting there going, dude, again, not safe. But he said, there's a pro I promise you there's a reason for it. So we started climbing. We get 15 minutes into the climb, and we're making our way through the cave. And guess what? The light hasn't gotten any bigger. And we start climbing a little bit more and 15 minutes into it, and the light is just barely bigger, about the, the size of a pencil. So we get climbing another 15 minutes, and all of a sudden it starts to get a little bigger and a little bigger. An hour and a half later, we're out of the cave into the bright sun. And he said this. He said, life is like the cave. We're going to go through some dark times. 
We're going to have some hardships and some difficulties. But if we'll keep our focus on the light. He said, and here's the truth. There may be times where it's so dark and so tempting and so difficult that you're going through that all you can see is just the little light of Jesus. He said, but if you'll keep your focus on him and you keep walking towards him and you keep moving towards him, you will eventually come out of the darkness. It's for a little time. But then he says this, trouble also serves a purpose because it says, if need be. If need be. In other words, Whatever you're going through, there's a lesson for you to learn. And I've learned to ask the right question. I used to ask why. I never get an answer to the question why. What I've asked God is, what are you trying to teach me through this? What lesson am I supposed to learn? Because the sooner I learn the lesson, the sooner the difficulty is over with. So if need be, God has a purpose behind it. He's trying to teach you something. Trouble also brings distress. He said, ye are in heaviness. I don't know if you've ever felt like the world was just crushing down upon you that you were bearing the weight of the world when you're going through a difficulty it just feels like you can't hold on any longer you can't bear the weight and it just seems like he keeps piling it on and piling on and piling on and you're just struggling to get through he says it's heaviness some translation says you're grieved by it it goes through a difficult time but here's the truth of the matter god will never give you more than you can handle never but here's the truth He will weigh you down so that when you come out of it, you're stronger than you ever have been before. I guarantee it. We also know that trouble comes in various forms. In verse 6, he says, through manifold temptations, or it may say various trials. Here's the thing. God is not going to keep putting us through the same trial to teach us the same lesson. Hopefully, we get the lesson. Then we can move on to, guess what? The next difficulty. We'll go through another hardship. It's various trials. In other words, Satan is going to put things in your path to try to trip you up, try to tear you down, and he's going to figure out what works in your life. So you got to be prepared for the various trials and understand keeping your focus on Jesus. Trouble should also not diminish the Christian's joy. In verse 6, he says, wherein ye greatly rejoice. I mean, we ought to be excited and thankful that we get to suffer. Boy, that really shuts y'all up real quick. Nope. It's the truth. When the disciples were persecuted for their faith, what did they do? They walked out and they said, we are glad, we are thankful, we're appreciative that we get to suffer like Jesus. They were thankful. So we can't let troubles, we can't let difficulties disturb our Christian joy. Because guess what? We know in the end that the prize that we're seeking after, the things that we're working for are greater than anything in this world. But we also know that trouble has great value. Verse 7, a trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. And to be tried through the fire might be found to the praise, honor, glory, and appearing of Jesus Christ. You see, it increases our faith and it glorifies God. You see, trials have a purpose. But this morning, what I want us to look at is two images. Two images of purging that God uses to test and improve your faith. The first image we're going to look at, if you'll flip over to John 15, we're going to look at how God prunes your life. God will prune your life. John 15, beginning in verse 1, we see the imagery. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Jesus said, I'm the true vine. Now, we got to understand this analogy. Jesus is declaring himself as a vine. In other words, he has a root system. He's grounded. Outside, he grows up and everything grows off of him. In other words, without the vine, nothing grows. 
So we need to understand that without Jesus, you're not going to grow. In your Christian faith, you won't grow. You won't get stronger. You won't get wiser. You'll be absolutely nothing without Jesus. You cannot walk the Christian life without Christ. It's that simple. It's never going to happen. But he also says this. He says, but the father is the husbandman, or a better translation, is the vine dresser. Now, what does that mean? That means the father is going to tend to the vine and those things that come off of the vine, which is what we are. We will be the branches, as it's going to talk about in just a moment. He's going to be the husbandman. He's going to do the trimming. He's going to do the clipping. He's going to do the watering. He's going to do the fertilizing. He's going to do the prepping. He's going to do the loving. He's going to do everything he can to help that vine to be successful and perfect and as it should be. So this is the imagery that we have. Well, now we get to the pruning in verse 2. Look at this. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now we understand that, guess what? If you've got a plant that's dying, you want to try to keep it alive, right? How, how many of you have a brown thumb? Anybody here have a brown thumb? You know, the opposite of a green thumb, right? We can kill any plant. You tell us we can't, we'll do it, all right? I'll go out sometimes, and I've got shrubs in my front yard. The shrub, you can go out there sometimes, and it's green, and it's beautiful, and then all of a sudden, you start to see a portion of it dying off. Now, you would think, well, what? Well, I guess that shrub is dead. Well, no, it's not dead. You know what you can do? You can go out there, and you can cut off the dead branches, and guess what will happen to that shrub? It will survive. It will live. But if you leave the dead branches on there, what will happen? It will creep into the other branches and it will kill it. Why? Because it will suck away the life-giving sap from the root system and it will diminish what's going to that which is growing and it will kill it. It will disease it. It will hurt it. It will tear it apart and destroy it. So God says, guess what? If there are dead branches on my mind, what am I going to do? I'm going to cut them off. Now, I know that just shocks you that there could be dead branches in the church, right? Can I tell you today that not everybody that comes to church is going to stand before God one day and he's going to say, welcome into my kingdom? It's not going to happen. There are dead branches in the church. These are the life suckers, right? They'll suck the life right out of you. They'll make it miserable for you to go to church and you just have to learn to what? Ignore them. Ignore them. If somebody comes up and starts causing you difficulty in the church, just walk away from them. Just say, I'm not going to listen to you any longer. I don't need this. You're not encouraging. You're not Christ-like. Bye-bye. It's not going to hurt you to do that. Man, I'm going to tell you, you will save yourself a lot of pain if you just walk away from those people. Guess what? They'll begin to realize they're on an island. Hopefully, they'll get the point. But he goes on. He says, every branch that beareth fruit. Now, get this. This is the one that blows me away. He purgeth it, or a better translation is he prunes it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, I never realized this until I had these things called crepe myrtles. Anybody have any crepe myrtles? Right? They're beautiful in the springtime. I mean, they bloom. But here's the thing. As they bloom, guess what? They eventually die in the fall time. As it becomes winter, they are ugly. And you sit back and you look at them and you go, well, I guess it's just going to grow back, right? And I've done that before with crepe myrtles and I just, I just let them go. I didn't do anything to them. And they'll come back and they'll be just like they were the year before. But a friend of mine told me one day, he said, hey, guess what? He said, if you'll prune them when they start to die, he said, you'll be amazed at how God will help them to bloom and they'll become even bigger and better and prettier. 
I thought, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. But I'll try it because mine are ugly anyway, so we'll cut them back. So I went in there and I cut them back, and I cut them way back. My wife goes, I think you killed them. I think you killed them. I said, well, we'll find out in the spring. They told me this is what you're supposed to do. And I cut them way back. I mean, I cut them almost back to the root. And so I had to start cutting off other pieces as it started growing. I started cutting off some of the tiny branches that were growing down towards the bottom of the tree. I had to cut off what they call the suckers, which are the ones that come up out of the ground that'll sap the strength from the roots. I had to start cutting off the leaning branches because those leaning branches were going to take away from the live branches. I had to cut off the dead branches. Man, when it come back that next year, holy moly, I mean, it was four times bigger. The flowers continued to bloom, and it was just absolutely beautiful. And I got the illustration. I said, Lord, I understand what you're saying. Sometimes you even have to prune back the good branches to help them bear more fruit, to make them more fruitful. That's why God will allow difficulties in your life to trim back things in your life so that he can make you more fruitful. God will allow you to be pruned. In fact, he's the one that does the pruning in your life. What can he prune from Christians' lives? Well, there's a couple things he needs to prune. Number one, he needs to prune unrighteousness and sin from you. He needs to prune unrighteousness and sin from you. He needs to cut it off. Let me tell you something. If you are involved in a sin and you know it's a sin, now here's the thing. I always love it when people go, well, I don't believe it's a sin. Let me tell you something. If you got to ask that question, you already know it is. You ever thought about that? If you have to ask if it's wrong, you already know it's wrong. Just don't do it. So he says, what? He wants to cut those things off from us. He wants to remove those sins from our lives. Why? Because if we continue on in sin, we're like a dead branch. We're not going to grow. We're not going to prosper. We're not going to be fed by the vine. Because why? Because we shut ourselves off from the vine by our sin. So he wants to cut that off of your life so that you can blossom, so that you can grow. And guess what? The Bible says he will discipline you according to Hebrews 12. But here's the thing. Let me tell you something, folks. If you claim to be a Christian and you are in sin and you know you're in sin and God is not disciplining you, the Bible says it's because you're not his. Man, if we would check ourselves just based on that, it might change a lot of things. But he wants to prune unrighteousness and sin. He wants to prune wasted time out of your life. Wasted time. Let's just be honest. How many of you are going to waste some time this afternoon and take you a nap? (laughs) Some of y'all are like, that's not wasted time. (laughs) I'm just playing. I don't care if you take a nap. But you think about it, man. We will waste time. We will do things that, in all honesty, are not important. Can I tell you things that are important? Spending time with your family, that's important. Yeah, having to work, that's important. Going to your kids' games, that's important. Being a part of their lives, helping them do their homework, that's important. I mean, there's a lot of things that are important for us, a lot of things that God wants us to do, a lot of things that we should be doing. And God doesn't want us to waste our time. I'm going to tell you, man, we waste a lot of time. And one of the worst time suckers is this thing right here. Man, I'm going to tell you what, if we could learn to just turn this thing off. People, you just don't realize, man, I used to love going out to eat until I had one of those. You know what I'm saying? Man, I loved it when people couldn't get a hold of me and they had to leave it on the answer machine. Y'all were like, dude, you need to go back to the 80s. That's okay. But I'm here to tell you, man, it was so much easier. But wasted time. 
is something that God wants to cut out of your life. You're ready for this? Good things that are not the best. One wise man made this statement. He said, the enemy of the best is the good. The enemy of the best is the good. In other words, there are things in our life that are actually good for our lives. But they may not be best. And because we spend time on the good, we fail to do what God desires us to do. One of the things I learned a long time ago was I would write out all the things that I needed to do. And I'd put a priority number behind. This is number one. This is number two. Why? Because if you don't do that, you're busy doing all kinds of things. And they might be good things, but they may not be what's the most important. And you miss out on what God wants you to do. God wants to prune these things from our lives. There are so many things that if we're not careful, we will allow them to get in the way. So we see the pruning. Let's look at the abiding. Verse 3. Now ye are clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I'm the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. There's three things I want us to gather from this part. Number one, every Christian bears fruit. Every Christian bears fruit. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said it this way. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 17. He says, Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. By their fruits. People will come up and ask me, Brother John, how do I know if I'm a Christian? That's one of the biggest questions I get as a pastor. How do I know that I know that I know that I'm saved? And the first thing I ask is, are you bearing fruit? And typically the response is, I don't know. What's fruit? That's a great question. It really is a good question. I want you to see there's five things that the Bible declares that are fruit. The first thing we look at is the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians 5 and verse 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, please hold on for a second, because let's just be honest. Everybody can love. So a lot of people look at that and they say, well, how, how big of a fruit is that? Well, it's, it's the way you love and who you love. All right? Everybody can love. Everybody can love people that love them. But the Bible tells us some other things that we're called to love. The Bible tells us that we're called to love all the brethren. Because the Bible tells us that if we don't love the brethren, how can we say we love the one whom we cannot see if we can't love the ones we see? He said it's impossible. Now here, better yet, the Bible also tells us that we're called to love our enemies. Now I'm going to tell you, That's not easy, is it? That's not easy to love the people that rub you the wrong way. That's not easy to love the people that talk poorly about you. That's not easy to love the people who will tear you apart in an instant. But that's what the Bible calls us to do. That's the love of Christ. Well, let's look at the next one. A lot of people say, oh, it's easy to have joy. No, it's easy to have happiness. Joy is different. Happiness is a feeling. 
And sometimes we're happy and sometimes we're not. Joy is not a feeling. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is understanding that when we pass from this world, we know where we're going. Joy is an understanding of knowing that there's no trial in this world that can take away our joy in Christ. That we have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We will always be joyous in the fact that Jesus is always with us. That's the difference in joy. We also see and look at it and we go, okay, well, what about peace? Man, we we have peace with people all the time. Well, that's good. I'm glad you have peace with them. But do you have peace with God? You see, God is offended by your sin. God is offended by the things that you do. Do you have peace with God? Only those that have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, repented of their sins, turned from their ways, and are obedient to the Word of God are those that can have peace with God. That's it. That's the peace he's talking about. Well, let's just look at one more, long-suffering. I mean, everybody wants that one, right? Everybody wants to go through difficulties. Everybody wants to go through hardships. Well, absolutely not. But a Christian says this. We know that the hardships that we go through are going to have a purpose in the end, and they're going to serve two purposes. Number one, they're going to grow my faith, and it's going to glorify God. That's the difference in a person with patience that is a person that is walking with Christ. These are the fruits that God desires to bear within our lives. Well, let's look at a second fruit. How about, did you know that praise honored to God is a fruit that we're supposed to be bearing? Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Man, it blows me away. I'm going to tell you this. And I know not everybody can sing. But how can you proclaim to be a Christian and not glorify God by singing? Whether you can sing or not. It blows me away what we call the humbug Christians. Or so they call themselves, right? You say, what do you mean? They're the ones that stand there like a solid rock. And they look at Travis like, I dare you to move me. I dare you to move me. Right? Here's the thing. A lot of people say, well, I just don't want to sing. I don't want to chase people away. Well, if they run away, it's okay. They'll come back. It's not about the way you sing. It's who you're singing to. That's why I love the song we just sang. The heart of worship. Why? Because... It's all about you, Jesus. It is nothing to do with me. You see, praise offered to God is a fruit we ought to be given. Sacrificial love and giving is a fruit also that we should be bearing as Christians. In the book of Philippians, chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul says this, Not because I desire a gift, but I desire the fruit that may abound to your account. You see, the people were helping Paul in the midst of a need. They were giving to him sacrificially. And God said that was a fruit that was welcomed unto him, that they were growing in. How about holy, righteous, and God-honoring behavior? That's a fourth fruit that we as Christians ought to be bearing. We go back to Matthew 3 and verse 8 where John the Baptist says this, Bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. In other words, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. If your life has been changed It will forever be changed. We will not want to go back to the old lifestyle. Now, we may falter and we may fail at times, but we're going to want to get right because we're going to want to be right with God. So that's a fruit. God-honoring, holy, righteous living. And five, how about converts for the kingdom? Winning people to Jesus. 
The book of Romans chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul says this. Now I would have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. You see, as a Christian, you want more people to know Christ. And therefore, you'll tell them about Christ. The Bible says if we're not gathering, did you know the Bible says if you're not gathering, you're scattering. Could you imagine that? You say, well, I'm not trying to push people away. Well, if you're not telling them about Jesus, guess what? Your lifestyle is pushing them away. That's what the Bible clearly mandates. We're called to share the gospel. Converts for the kingdom, that's fruit. So if you look at these five things, you say, well, man, I don't, I, don't, I don't have those kind of fruits of the Spirit where my love is different and my joy is different my peace is different. Or I'm not out there praising God as I should. Or I'm not out there telling people about Jesus. Or my attitude, my lifestyle's not changed. Then maybe you need to consider that you're not bearing fruit. And what does Jesus say he's going to do to those branches? He's going to cut them off according to verse 6. And cast them into the fire. So maybe you need to be more attached to the vine. Than being a dead branch on your own. Let's look at the abiding. That's the second thing. Every Christian bears fruit. Every Christian abides in Christ. In verse 4 he says abide in me. Verse 5. He that abideth in me. Verse 7. If ye abide in me. And for those that do not. Verse 6. If a man abideth not in me. Abide, what does that mean? That means to dwell in Christ. It means that in everything that we're doing, in everything that we desire, in everything that we long for, we want Christ at the center of it. Do you realize that Christ ought to be the center of everything you do, even at your jobs? Even at your jobs, Christ should be the center of it. You say, well, how can that be? How do you know that God hasn't put a coworker in your path that he desires for you to share the gospel with him? How do you know that God hasn't put that student beside of you that needs to see a life-changing influence in their lives that can see Christ in you? You never know what God is calling you to do, but a Christian is going to abide in Christ. In other words, we're going to have every desire to get closer to God on a daily basis. Daily basis. Finally, every Christian should desire to bear much fruit. Not a little fruit. But much fruit. Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable there. And in verse 8, he says, But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. You go to verse 23 for the translation of that, and he says, But that he received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. What's his point? His point is simply this We should desire to be the one that bears a hundredfold. We should. Now, I'll be honest with you, there's some people that come up to me and they say, man, I just don't understand why I'm not really growing in my relationship with God. And they get concerned because they're kind of like the 30-fold. And they begin to wonder, why, why am I not growing as I should? Well, the question is, are you abiding as you should? Because the more you abide in Christ, the more fruitful you'll become. There's no doubt about it. The more you're attached to the vine, the more fruit you'll bear, the more beautiful you'll be. But you have to be attached to the vine. You have to be abiding in the vine. You have to be getting your life from the vine. You have to be loving the vine. But man, if, if you want to, that's fine. There are some Christians out there that aren't going to do a whole lot. Let's just be honest. And they're fine with that. But I'm going to tell you what. I long, long, long to hear those words. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. 
Every Christian should desire to bear much fruit. Well, let's look at the second analogy. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to look at purging your work. Purging your work. We begin in verse 10. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But every man taketh heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. First we see the foundation. The foundation. I've laid the foundation, verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ foundation has been laid he's the cornerstone the bible tells us in fact we we can look at a story in matthew 7 that tells us that he who hears the word of god is like a home that's built on the rock and when the storm comes what happens it does not fall over but he who hears the word of god but does not abide in it doesn't listen to it doesn't do it is what is like the man who built his house on the sand and when the storm come and beat upon it it fell down flat you see, you got to have the right foundation. That's first and foremost. But let's just be honest. And, and we know that that foundation, there's no other name by which man shall be saved other than Jesus Christ. That's it. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. That's it. We know that to be true. The foundation has been set. But let's be honest. How many of you would just go and say that this is your house if all you had was a foundation? Anybody just willing to live on a foundation? I don't see any of you out there with a foundation, and that's your house, right? You got walls. You got a roof. You got rooms inside of it. And that's what he's talking about here. We're building upon the foundation by our lives. And he says in verse 12, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, how is it tried? It's tried by fire. What will happen to gold if it's tried by fire? Well, if it's hot enough, it will melt it, but yet it will still remain. It will be gold. In fact, gold was used to be refined. They would dip it in fire. They would turn it up, and they would heat it up. They would melt it down, and then they would scoop out the impurities. But gold will still be gold, even through the fire. Silver will still be silver, even through the fire. Precious jewels will still be precious jewels, even through the fire. They will survive, but what will not? Look at the ends. Wood, hay, and stubble. I wonder if you ever thought that the story of the three little pigs would be used in church. Right? Bet you never thought that, did you? Well, we know the story of the three little pigs, right? One built his house out of straw. And one built his house out of sticks. And one built it out of brick. The one who built his house out of straw did it for what reason? So that he could build it quickly and he could get about playing and having a good time. The problem was that the straw house was blown away, correct? There was no structure. There was no support. There was no help. It was weak. It was many people in the Christian walk, we build our houses out of straw. We build it out of stubble. Why? Because we want a quick fix in our relationship with God, but then we want to get to do what we want to do. 
We might have the right foundation, but man, when it comes time for the judgment, our house is burned up. And we have nothing but the foundation. And we're scarcely saved, it says. There are others who build theirs out of wood. They build it out of sticks. They build it up real quickly. Again, there's really no support. There's no structure behind it. And sure enough, when the fire comes, guess what? You don't want a house made out of wood, do you? It'll burn it right up. It'll consume it. But again, you're left with what? The foundation. Many people build their lives in the Christian walk on wood. They'll go out there and they'll do a few things for Jesus, but in truth, they're not doing it for Jesus. They're doing it for the accolades that they can get for themselves. They want you to see what they're doing. They want you to know who they are. But here's the truth of the matter. When you're doing it for your glory and not the glory of God, it will be burned up in the end. It will be burned up. But you see, he doesn't use brick here, but he uses gold and silver and precious stones. And when the fire comes, guess what? Those are the ones that are going out here and they're serving the Lord for the right reasons. And they're telling Jesus because they want to see people saved. They're telling people about him because they want to see more people come into the kingdom. They're out here serving, not to get the praise of man, but they're out here serving and doing the work that's got to be done, doing things like serving in nursery. You got that, right? (laughs) Serving in nursery. You say, why would you mention that, Brother John? Because that's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. But it is a glorious job. It is a glorious job. Serving in preschool, serving with our children. Man, these are wonderful jobs. We're blessed. I mean, here's the thing. They're not doing it for credit. They're doing it because it's what God has called them to do. And hopefully you'll do the same. But here's the thing. Those are the things that we're doing for the glory of God and not for the glory of ourselves. We're doing it so that God receives the glory and the honor and the praise. And man, in that day, guess what? Your house will stand. You see, God may need to purge your work. The question is, what are you doing for the glory of God? I'll be honest with you. God doesn't want pew warmers. I'm serious. God doesn't want pew warmers. You say, well, brother, I'm just glad I'm here. Well, I'm glad you're here too, but now it's time to get off your tush. Right? Now it's time to get up and do something for God. Man, could you imagine if every single one of us in here showed up for Sunday walk? Man, this community thinks something went wrong in our church. Why are all these people out visiting? Because we want you to know Jesus. Imagine if every chair up here in the choir was filled up. And we had to add more. Imagine if Reba and Rachel never had to beg for help in nursery and children's work. Man, that's the way it should be. In a perfect world. In a perfect church. And I understand we're not perfect. But that shouldn't mean we shouldn't strive to be. You see, God may be purging your work and saying, here's what I want you to do. Here's where I want you to serve. Here's what I need you to do. Will you answer the call? You see, God is going to prune your life. God is going to purge your work. The question is, are you going to be able to stand in the end? The question is, first and foremost, do you have the right foundation? Is Jesus your foundation? Because without that foundation, you're building on sand and it's going to fall over. So what are you building on? Now, if you're building on the platform of Christ, then guess what you better be prepared for? God will prune your life. 
He will prune things out of your life that you don't need, that are not necessary so that he can use you to further his kingdom and glorify his name. Are you willing to let him prune you? Are you wanting to bear more fruit? Will you allow him to purge your work? You see, here's the thing. God is not going to make you do anything. He's going to ask you to do it. And then he'll reward you if you do it for the right reason. But if you don't do it, Boy, I don't want to be in that fire. Where are you at today? What does God need to take out of your life? What is God asking you to do? Where is he asking you to serve? Will you allow him to use his purging fire in your life to change you forever?